I do not have a utopian view of the American model and a dystopian view of the Chinese model. You know, there are a lot of reasons why they've had levels of growth that we haven't had in recent years. One among them is their ability to do really strong industrial policy. But, you know, I'm struck by one thing. You know, if you go to any naturalization ceremony in the U.S., you know, one of those rooms where anywhere from a few dozen to a few hundred people are becoming American citizens, you'll see among them a great number, a great many people from China. If you go to a naturalization ceremony in China, if you can find one, you sure as hell aren't going to find an American. There's still tons of Chinese who would love to be American, and you can't find a single American anywhere who wants to renounce the citizenship and become Chinese. And I think that flows directly from from the relative openness of America and the American economic model contrasted with the more authoritarian model coming from Beijing. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. We often speak with world leaders, world-leading entrepreneurs, scientists, and folks that are pushing the envelope on the private side of things in terms of where we're headed for the future. Today, we thought we'd go into the public sector and look at someone who's contributed a ton and is at the cutting edge of innovation. Today, we have Alec Ross on the program. He's an Obama alum, one of America's leading experts on innovation, and currently a distinguished fellow at John Hopkins University. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Industries of the Future, which looks at the technological and economic trends that's going to shape the next 10 years. And he served four years as the senior advisor for innovation to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, traveling to over 41 countries to focus on innovation, change, and building a, building a better world. He helped Obama get elected in Obama's first campaign. We'll talk about that a little bit more. It's quite a story and why Obama was such an incredible leader. And he's won too many awards to name. Top 100 Global Thinkers by Foreign Policy Magazine, U.S. Department of State Distinguished Honor Award, and you know what? A ton of other awards as well. He's got so much to add that I don't think we need to list his numerous awards. You guys can go to disruptors.fm if you want to check out the show notes. He's an interesting guy and we need to jump into it because in today's episode we discuss the reason why Obama was such a special, charismatic leader, regardless of what you thought about his policies and what other leaders can learn from him. Why Alec left a successful entrepreneurial career to help Obama launch his. The possible existential problem with social media, how politics changes post-Trump and where we're headed, why Alec isn't worried about tech monopolies, which industries Alec believes are the next trillion-dollar markets, and why biotech and human enhancement are inevitable. This was an incredibly fun one. I could not believe that we were only talking for an hour and 10 minutes. The amount of topics and content that we cover is is really breathtaking. This is the reason that I started The Disruptors, to have these type of conversations and get those out there with the world, to try to keep them not partisan, but focused on where we need to be headed as a, as a species and as, as a society. We talk about going forward, going backward, some of the issues, a lot of the issues with the world today, and some ways, ideally, that we can try to fix some of these. I had a lot of fun recording this, and I'm sure you guys will as well. And if this is something that you enjoy and benefit from, if you do support the work that we do at disruptors.fm, consider supporting us. Consider making a a donation. So we're sponsored by a 501c3. That's a charity for US terms. So if you guys are a US citizen or paying US taxes, you can write off 100% of your donation. Yes, 100% of your donation from taxes. Instead of paying it to Uncle Sam, you can help us fund innovation. You can help us fund the disruptors. You can help us fund getting these important ideas out there. You can go to disruptors.fm slash support for more details. If you want the simple way, just go to disruptors.fm slash Patreon and you can back us on Patreon. If you back us for more than $5, 
$10 or more per month, then you'll unlock some bonus episodes, typically weekly, with some of the best and brightest out there. We don't publish everything that we have to our feed because we've got to have a little something extra to help support us. It's either that or we run ads for toothbrushes and mattresses and deodorant that you don't really want and you can't really trust us because we have lots of ads basically telling you to buy buy shit that you don't need. So instead of telling you to buy shit that you don't need, support us if you want to, support us if you can, and if you can't, share this with a friend. Either way, it's time to get back to the episode. Now, without further ado, I give you Alec Ross. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code DISRUPTORS at Disruptors. We're big on health and biotech for a reason. It amplifies everything. Disruptors.fm slash qualia. Use coupon code disruptors. And now let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I wanted to start with the innovation hubs. I hear you traveled the world. You helped Hillary quite a bit in her secretary of state role. And your job was innovation. What, what exactly did you do? Yeah. So look, I, I was the person in the Obama administration whose job it was essentially to lead a team to figure out how to maximize the potential of technology to address foreign policy problems. So that's everything from wiping out GPS in Syria so the Syrian intelligence service can't locate people through the GPS on their cell phones and assassinate them, to putting an anonymized encrypted text messaging program in place in cartel-controlled cities in northern Mexico so people could safely report crime and cartel activity, to restoring communications in rebel-held territory in Libya during the revolution. You know, basically, I I operated in this world that was not entirely white and overt or black and covert, you know, but worked with a team from across government, basically, with some technology skills to try to advance America's foreign policy interests. So you were a spy and a super genius. You were M. <laughs> no, no, I was. I, I, I did not work in the in the covert world. It sounds. Uh, it sounds. Super I'm able to. Exciting. I'm able to give up to talk on a podcast about. Whatever. Yeah, they're not. They're not going to come and grab you. I hope. But if they do, this will be great footage. What? Uh, how did you? How did you get into government? How did you get into politics, innovation? What's your background? Yeah, so I I got into government politics through the first Obama campaign. I ran tech policy for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. But before that, I was an entrepreneur. You know, it's sort of the classic American entrepreneurship story. I started a a tech-focused company in a basement with three friends, you know, a long time ago. It was the right idea at the right time. It became, you know, somewhat successful. And it was through that, you know, we we actually did some work in Chicago that I got to know a, a really smart state senator. And when he ran for United States Senate, I helped him. And when that United States senator ran for president, I helped him. And so I sort of got into politics and government specifically because of Barack Obama. Did you find it a little bit weird or uncomfortable? You're the entrepreneur. You're you're kind of the anti-government guy, I would imagine. At least that's what it feels like from the business side. Did it feel weird to switch? Well, not entirely. I mean, the first thing is that the caricature of government as being innovation adverse is not entirely true. I mean, that that may be the case in many respects. But when you're, you know, engaging with people at the White House and the in the senior most levels of government, I mean, with all due respect to, you know, the app makers of the world, uh, there's a whole lot of game there. 
you know, just read the, you know, read what was actually leaked by Edward Snowden. You know, the capabilities in the senior most parts of government, there's some it's pretty substantial. And, you know, we were able to, I guess, because I wasn't so, sort of a mid-level bureaucrat, I had the authority and the ability to be able to make things happen that oftentimes aren't able to happen in government. How do you make things happen? You know, part of it is by having support from the top. So whether it was the president or whether it was the secretary of state, whether it was the military. I mean, when it's time to wipe out GPS in Syria to stop assassinations, if you have the top cover from a president of the United States or a secretary of state or a CIA director, you then ha- you can then move this big engine of government. But you have to have your hands on the lever and the will and ability to then use it. So it was this was that is sort of the top down approach. The bottom up approach was you know, there were a lot of people in government under the age of 35 who didn't want to go into middle age as sort of, you know, white shirt, red tie bureaucrats. And, you know, it's sort of they they loved the innovation agenda. So it gave us this little army of younger diplomats, younger people, younger defense officials, younger White House officials who were willing to make mistakes of commission rather than omission and really figure out how to use technology. Do you think that's still happening today or does it feel like we've gone backwards? It's hard to tell from the outside. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that we've gone backwards. Um, you know, there's maybe a smart technology person or two or three and the Trump administration, but it's pretty regressive. I mean, everything from, you know, we're going to open the coal mines again to, you know, sort of 19th century anti-immigrant neo-mercantilist economic policy. I mean, when when Donald Trump says we're going to make America great again, there's actually some political economic theory behind that. It's, it's a concept called palingenesis. It's the evocation of a utopian past that may or may not have existed before. It's kind of like, you know, when Mussolini, uh, you know, whose you know, who's fascism is similar to Trump's, would say, you know, we're going to restore the greatness of Rome. Or Hitler, another person whose politics are closer to Trump's than, you know, they are to Obama's, you know, would say, you know, the Germans will rise again. You know, this assertion of a utopian past that may or may not have existed before has deep roots in sort of political ideology. And it is by its nature regressive. It's not future looking. And it's easy to forget the the negatives of the past because you only remember the positives. They're much more, they're much larger on the on the sum, so to speak. But if you if you have a shorter term time horizon, the news, the news is always negative. It's why you don't really want to watch the news. But if you could watch the hundred year news, everything would be freaking great. You know, it it is kind of funny when you think about that. I mean, goodness, I'm not that old. I'm 46 years old. But the day I was born, global life expectancy was 58. Today, it's over 70. Uh, You know, so the other thing is that, you know, when you do evoke this glory of years past, you're evoking a period of substantially shorter lives. You know, at 46, you would have been entering old age. Today, you know, lots of us are you know, refusing to even call ourselves middle-aged. You know, the 46-year-olds of today act like the 36-year-olds of of five years ago and the 26-year-olds of of 30 years ago. So it is this, this, the, the relativism and, uh, in how we assess a period of time is pretty remarkable. How do we change that on a policy perspective? We all know that social security screwed, right? That's a, you know, that's a good question. You know, I think that, you know, look, all of these technology changes contribute to the promise and peril of what's happening to us. But I do think that we are sort of awash in bad news right now. And we do have to, we do have to point to the positive. For example, again, during my, what I think is a short life, you know, global life expectancy has gone from the 50s to the 70s. That's a great story. So, but in addition to telling great stories, I think what we need to do 
is we need to make sure that, you know, those segments of society that have struggled in the last few decades uh, understand why they're struggling. And, you know, it's not just technology isn't blamed or, you know, those those Silicon Valley guys aren't blamed. It's There's a lot more complexity to it than that. How do we do that? Because there's been such an anti-science movement between that and anti-fact. It's, it's problematic to say the least. It's enormously problematic. You know, God, I wish I had an answer to that. You know, I've got, I'm chock-a-block full of opinions. But if, you know, and if I, if I thought I did know the answer to that, it's probably what I'd spend 16, 17 hours a day doing. I'm not curled into the fetal position. I'm not saying that there isn't a road forward. But every time somebody tries to do something, you know, create more curated news spaces, uh, trying to create, you know, programs or products that, that burst filter bubbles, they don't really break through. Um, so right now, I think things are trending in all of the wrong directions. It's because of it's it's evolutionary. We're designed to have 150 people in our circle. We're designed to trust them over others because that allows us to survive and have easier processing power, so we can go and find food and make babies. It's a <laughs> it's it's a problem. Humanity's past the point of our evolutionary means at this point. Well, look, that's a better explanation than than I could have otherwise offered offered because you know most of the other explanations is that you know humans are basically herd animals, and you know if you if you feed the herd animals enough bad information and change their information environments, then they're easily manipulable. I used to think one of the single biggest mistakes I made, you know, in any job anywhere was my judgment probably 10 years ago that the internet made propaganda more difficult because I thought that it would be easier to sort of name and shame uh, manipulation and or to fact check. And even though it is easier to fact check than ever before, what it's all what it's also done essentially is give a framework for alternative facts. So boy, was I wrong. What do you think about the dichotomy with the, the US system of more open internet versus the Chinese system of a more closed and centralized? Well, look, it, you know, not surprisingly, I have pretty strong views about this. I mean, my my name was a banned search term uh, on the internet in China when I was working for President Obama, specifically because one of the programs that I ran was our internet freedom agenda. Everything right down to the funding of Tor and other proxy and circumvention technologies so that when people are in China, they can communicate with the outside world. So look, I have, I have a strong ideological view that the, that the openness of our networks are at the core of why we have had so much innovation and wealth creation over the last quarter century. And closing those networks, censoring those networks, having centralized command and control of those networks uh, is as authoritarian as, I mean, it's that's 21st century authoritarianism in my view. It is, but let's play devil's advocate. Can it be a more effective system? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I think a lot of the things that China is doing are terrible. I right. just see them kicking the U.S.'s butt when it comes to a lot of funding, innovation, growth, and future industries. Yeah, so let's make a distinction between two things. You know, one sort of centralized industrial policy and another, you know, open or closed internet. You know, having Beijing instrument industrial policy in a way that does not happen in the United States lends itself to certain efficiencies. You know, it makes it easy to commandeer an entire economy. Everything that happens in that country of 1.3 billion people flows from a strategy that Xi Jinping 
has architected in Beijing. That that enables a level of coordination, discipline, and strategy that our messier, more decentralized America does not allow for. Here's the thing, though. I will trade our messier, less controlled environment over the more centralized command and control environment of the Chinese any day of the week. Even in fields like AI, where the Chinese have made remarkable gains because of the will that they have, I would take $100 million of American R&D in a more open environment over $500 million in the Chinese more closed R&D models uh, any day. Especially because there's no exits in China. It's very hard to actually get any money out once you once you do have any type of success. I think it's a it's not something I believe, but it's something that's an interesting thing to bring up because not enough people really consider some of the the parallels if you were to kind of invert the circle. And I think I think circles always go around. No, I think you're right. And you know, look, I do not have a you know I'm I do not have a utopian view of the American model and a dystopian view of the Chinese model. You know, there are a lot of reasons why they've had levels of growth that we haven't had in recent years. One among them is their ability to do really strong industrial policy. Uh, but you know, I'm struck by one thing. You know, if you go to any naturalization ceremony in the U.S., you know, one of those rooms where anywhere from a few dozen to a few hundred people are becoming American citizens, you'll see among them a great number, a great many people from China. If you go to a naturalization ceremony in China, if you can find one, you sure as hell aren't going to find an American. There's still tons of Chinese who would love to be American, and you can't find a single American anywhere who wants to renounce his citizenship and become Chinese. And I think that flows directly from the relative openness of America and the American economic model contrasted with the more authoritarian model coming from Beijing. I think that's a good point. I think other countries possibly, but China, China, not so much. What right. was it like? What was it like when you met Obama? Talk about that. Well, at first it was, he was just a state senator. So I didn't think it was a big deal. And, you know, I thought far from it. You know, I thought he was a very smart state senator. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, this is not your typical locally elected official. And, you know, my goodness, oh, look at this background. He was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. He, he does have some extra skills. As I got to know him, what I became impressed, most impressed by was his ability to move between two different worlds. You know, the world of the South Side of Chicago, which he was then representing, and the world of geopolitical ideas. You know, he could go from the 196 country chessboard to, you know, the 15 wards he represented in the south side of Chicago and connect the two in a way that I thought was incredibly rare. And that's why I chose to get involved from you know the very beginning of his career as a national political figure, because there was this otherness. He had this sixth gear that others don't have. Is that the big difference between Obama and other politicians? You look at politicians today, and you can comment or not comment, uh, de depending on what your future aspirations are. <laughs> but a lot of them seem like complete scumbags. They seem completely disconnected from the people they represent. And they think primarily big picture and a lot of times for themselves or their party above all else. Yeah, no, look, I mean, if you take the 535 members of the United States Congress, inclusive of the Senate, you know, those are not, those tend not to be my 535 favorite people in the world. You know, I, look, there is, we shouldn't, politics and government are incredibly important. And, you know, I will spend my life moving between politics and government, entrepreneurship, academia, you know, I think that there's, it's a good idea to move between those worlds. But for those people who can't do anything other than run for office, and when they're in office, all they really give a 
a shit about is accumulating more power and running for the next office. You know, I hold those people in contempt. And it's part of why, you know, even though I'm a Democrat and, you know, work for Barack Obama, I'm oftentimes very critical of the Democratic Party because, you know, I, I think the shortcomings in the Democratic Party are substantial. You know, we don't have the the lun- the sort of neo-fascism that we see in the Republican Party right now. But we do see, you know, the, the leadership of the Democratic Party is chock-a-block full of career politicians who do not have the first clue about how the economy works. And it's, it's tough. Just looking at politics from the outside, it's very easy to become to become cynical. What does what does Silicon Valley, what do tech leaders need to do to try to better interface with, with government? It seems like in the past, it was kind of, yeah, we don't really care about this. But in the future, I think going forward, that needs to change. It seems like tech leaders, tech leaders seem much more equipped to handle the coming challenges that we're going to be facing than most of our politicians. I, I'm sure you saw the Zuckerberg, uh, whatever you want to call it, fiasco. Yeah, well, look, I... I think there's some balance here. So first of all, I agree with your assertion that tech leaders are much better suited to architect the future than the vast, vast majority of our elected officials. I agree with that statement. Having said that, you know, I do think that there's that a lot of the time what I've seen from Silicon Valley is a lack of understanding of the world outside Silicon Valley and a lack of understanding of the world outside of the technology industry. So I do think there's some give and take there, but I think they have to more aggressively engage in policymaking in Washington, in Brussels, in Tokyo, wherever policymaking is taking place, because this whole libertarian view of, oh, I'm going to go build the future and government, and I don't have to worry about government. Well, you know, that's just bullshit. You know, libertarians don't build roads or fight wars or, you know, keep your keep your food healthy, keep your skies clean. It doesn't work. And to just disengage from government is to cede the playing field to people far less capable than you and far less understanding than you of the forces shaping the future. How could you take what Obama did in terms of connecting with people on a global and uh, individual basis and teach that or train that to politicians or specifically tech leaders? I imagine if they were to meet Obama, they would think a little bit differently. I'm not saying he's the world's best president because I don't think he was. But I think in terms of being a, he seems like a generally good human being. And I don't think you can say that about a lot of politicians. Well, he is, look, he is a, a, a genuinely good human being. Look, I don't know how you can train authenticity or, you know, I think you can train people to communicate. But I think the most important thing is to people need to understand that you've only got one mouth, but you've got two ears. And I think that a lot of the time when people think about how to connect, whether it's globally or in smaller settings, they're thinking about what they're going to say. And they forget that, you know, the best way to inform what you say is to actually listen very carefully. And I find that a lot of people rather than listening are just waiting for their turn to talk. So that's where I would start with anything. I mean, the second thing is Obama did, I, I think he is who he is in part because he moved between worlds. He moved between worlds that were white and black, between worlds that were urban and rural, between the very poor South Side of Chicago and the very wealthy world of Harvard educated elites. So if you were, if I were going to give that advice, if I were going to give advice to, you know, whether it was people in the technology industry, or for that matter, people in Washington, I'd say, if you want to understand how to connect with people outside of your circle, you need to spend time outside of your circle. And it's something that from the day he was born, Barack Obama did. And what we saw were, were remarkable natural gifts combined with by the time he'd been elected president, 40 some years of moving between worlds. 
And I think that's I think that's incredibly prescient for people because we're moving towards a world where all of us are in that same world. It's uh humanity seems to have forgotten that we're one freaking civilization. Do you think we ever get to that point of let's say do you think in the next 50 100 years we have some type of global civilization where it's one people one government versus kind of what we have today which is lots of kids fighting over the scraps? Yeah, no, look, I I think that I don't think we're going to have homogenization of culture and governance. You know, if anything, we've seen, you know, uh, we, we saw during the 80s, 90s and first decade of the 21st century, we saw some homogenization. And then over the last eight, eight-ish years, we've seen, you know, a reassertion of certain kinds of nationalism and sort of pixelation. I think that there will be certain things that homogenize, but I don't see people allowing their identity. I don't, I don't imagine a, a global melting pot. And in fact, part of what I think people find most rewarding these days for both good and bad in a world that is more globally connected, that which is local and that which speaks to their own identity and heritage, I believe, grows more important. That's that's pretty cyclical, though. If you kind of look, it always it's always going up and down. And then five years from now, it's going to be exciting to have the, I don't know, coffee from Peru and the nice dresses from France. And it kind of it kind of goes yeah. in, and, in and out when in that um, in that sine wave type function. I think so. I agree with that, which is why in 50 or 100 years, I don't see us going from 196 sovereign nation states to one or, you know, a world with, you know, a few thousand identifiable cultures or microcultures to a handful of them. So it's the sino wave design that I actually believe in that will have us, you know, alternating between sort of globalism and localism. Do you think we'll have more or less governing type bodies? So countries, city states, etc. in, in 5200 years than we have now? I, I, that's a great question because there are two things working against each other here, right? So big nation states are more and more difficult to govern. And where we see the real action in governance tends to be at the local level, at the municipal level or at the state level. But by the same token, we see new forms of governance for lack of a better word, coming from massive global platforms, you know, the Amazons and Apples of the world, which in effect are setting terms of governance, whether it's economic governance or or even with, you know, terms of service governance uh, in terms of speech and other things. We see this, th- this dynamic that seems to be in conflict of of things simultaneously getting bigger and smaller. So 50 to 100 years from now, I don't know if we're going to have more or fewer forms of governance. Does it scare you, the power of the tech giants? No. I, gosh, maybe. I get part, of a, part of the reason why I haven't been as scared as others is honestly because I know the leadership of the tech giants. And while they may fuck up periodically, um, I don't perceive malignant intent among any of them. Leaders change. Leaders do change. No, that's that's right. And, you know, the individual, there's a difference between the individual and the institutional. And also, and this is just my own sort of position of super privilege. If I feel like something's totally screwed up inside one of the platforms, I historically have been able to email somebody there and it actually gets addressed. You know, that was actually my job in many respects at the during the Obama administration was to work with these big platforms. Um, I do. Th- I also think that for all the screw ups that take place there, you know, the biggest of which recently has to be uh, Facebook's role in the 2016 election. If you look at the big platforms, it's hard to argue that they haven't made our lives substantially better. You know, I sure do like my iPhone. And 
have benefited from it. I sure do like and have benefited from Google search. You know, Amazon Prime has kept me from wasting God knows how many hours. You know, Facebook, as pissed off as everybody is at Facebook right now, has, you know, does make it easier than ever for me to connect with people all over the world. So, you know, while I'm I'm not going to put a halo over the over the heads of the of the platforms and their leaders, what I'm going to say is that I think that they're taking a beating right now. That's probably a little much. I know for your book, you had a testimonial by Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Alphabet or Google or whichever it was at the time. How do you contrast the leaders in tech versus the leaders in politics? Good question. Uh, I mean, first of all, the leaders in tech tend to be a lot more impressive than the leaders in politics. You know, there are exceptions. Uh, you know, Barack Obama is an exception. Here's what I would say is that they have different they have different incentives. The leaders in tech tend not to be looking for you know, large scale public affirmation and their incentives are their their incentives are within a small to maximize their prominence within a smaller within a smaller community and to maximize wealth. Among politicians, the juice, what seems to really get a politician going is public love. You know, somebody coming up to them at the, you know, at the burger joint and, you know, saying, hey, I voted for you. You know, you can just see their eyes twinkle when people, when politicians are confronted that way. Whereas, you know, a tech CEO who's, who's confronted by one of their users, you know, you can see that they're, they freak out. So for tech CEOs, the incentives are really a, to, to maximize standing within a smaller social circle and to maximize wealth. And for the politician, it's to maximize public standing and power. So narcissism. So in terms of in terms of politics, is it forever changed and broken post Trump? We basically learned what we learned at the beginning of the internet. If you would say something outrageous, people would link to you and say, God, this is a terrible person. And then you would rank number one and you would get all the traffic. That happened to a massively ridiculously larger scale at this point because everyone got upset about about Trump. Europeans were like, God, well, look what's happening here. And I had friends, I was living in Europe and they were all going and checking out these stories. And all that does is feed eyeballs, which push things up to the top of the news which is kind of news and kind of stories. Yep. Well, look, so is it irrevocably broken? No. I mean, there have been, you know, other leaders in world history, you know, two of whom I named Mussolini and Hitler, who I believe are, you know, vulgar, demented pig demons, a la Donald Trump, but we've recovered. And similarly, what I hope, you know, not everybody recovered, you know, just ask 6 million Jews in Germany. And I do think that there will be um, a substantial cost exerted on humanity and on America and Americans specifically by Donald Trump's presidency. But I can't help but think that we can recover from this. See, that's not what I mean, though. When you learn the gamification strategies to always win, yep. we can we can play tic-tac-toe. And if I know how to not lose, you will never win the game. Right. Once, once that cat is out of the bag, so to speak, is there a way to put the cat back? I mean, the next politician just has to not be an asshole, but also essentially scream at the top of their lungs. And they kind of figured out what works and what doesn't. It's extreme. That's what works on websites. That's what seems to work if you want to get elected. Yeah. So th- certainly that's what is working now. Whether that is what will be working in two or three or five or eight years is to be determined. Because I do think that there's going to be, there has to be a sort of lashing out against Trump. Um, where even if somebody becomes incredibly well-known, becoming incredibly well-known does not necessarily translate into winning elections. So I think that there will be politicians who become incredibly well-known but may, who may end up losing. So you don't think all publicity is good publicity? Well, look, uh, um, 
I don't. I do think it's good up to a certain point where, you know, if you run for office and nobody knows who you are, you're not going to win. And maybe this is me being a, you know, an, you know, naive, but I just can't help but think that, you know, if the way in which you are becoming known ultimately makes you look horrible, it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, that Trump-like strategy is always going to work. It worked once. It worked with Donald Trump. How systemic that is, I think, is TBD. I think you could fix it if you required 100% voter turnout. But if you don't, you're just trying to, you're just pattering to the most extreme. So extreme will have high turnout. And then no one wanted to come for Hillary because people hated her for XYZ reason. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, be, you know, if you're going to take mandating voting out of this, you know, just increasing the level of voter participation among people under 40, you know, people under 40 didn't necessarily like Hillary Clinton, but they still voted for her, you know, under, for people under 40, they, she still crushed Trump. So whether something's mandatory or not, you've got to, you know, behaviors have to change so that, you know, decisions made by people over the age of 60 are not entirely deterministic for what's going to happen for absolutely everybody. Especially not if they're going to be living longer. Let's uh, let's talk tech and some of the interesting stuff that you saw while in and outside of the White House. What are you most excited about? I'm most excited about the commercialization of genomics. You know, each of us have 20 to 25,000 genes in our body. And, you know, for many years, ever since the mapping of the human genome, 20 some odd, 20 ish years ago, we've imagined a day where we might be able to do precision medicines and, and you know, diagnostics that are otherworldly relative to the medical practices of our youth. I think we're getting really close to that. I think that the ability to, you know, the ability to identify cancerous cells at one one hundredth of what can be seen by an MRI by doing a simple genetic sample, it's not going to, it's not, that doesn't cure cancer, but for many cancers, it takes it from being an automatic killer to being something that is, is really treatable. I think that we were talking earlier in this conversation about how global life expectancy when I was born was 58. Today, it's over 70. The way for global life expectancy to get into the 80s, I believe, is through the commercialization of genomics. And then from a wealth creation standpoint, I think it's going to be, you know, internet-like in its impact. Uh, you know, the world's last trillion dollar industry was created out of computer code. The world's next trillion dollar industry, I believe, is going to be created out of, out of genetic code. Hey, I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you about a little project I've been working on. I've been working on a sci-fi novel focused on the future of humanity and what happens when we get deeper and deeper into genetic engineering and cybernetic enhancements. It's something that I've been working on. It's a bit of a passion project, and I haven't wanted to tell you guys about it yet because it's one of those things where you never really know if you're going to publish it. Well, now I'm getting so far along in the novel and really starting to love the direction that it's going. I wanted to get some feedback from some of you guys. So if you're interested in checking out the beta version, so to speak, of the novel, you can get the first five Five chapters for free if you go to disruptors.fm slash book. Just add your email address. I need your hard, honest feedback on the book and how you like it, if you like it, and what, if anything, I could do to improve it. That's the only way that authors and writers and thinkers like myself can try to improve what we're working on and make it more interesting and exciting for the public. So if you guys are interested in this, check out the book. You can go to disruptors.fm slash book. Enter your email address. You'll get the first five chapters emailed to you. It's much further along than that, but I want to just send you the first five chapters so that you don't get overwhelmed and you can provide me a little bit of feedback. And if you like the book, you'll be on the first access list for when it goes live. There may be some 
bonus beta coupons as well that get handed out for people that help with making the book uh, a better, more awesome experience. So if that's something that you're interested in looking into, the future of humanity and what happens when genetic engineering goes vastly awry, then disruptors.fm slash book. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate your help on this. This is something that I'm pretty passionate about. It's pretty personal and not sure how it's going to turn out yet. Disruptors.fm slash book. And now back to our episode. Probably even more. I mean, what's more valuable than living longer? That's what, exactly what right. What billionaire wouldn't give everything if they didn't have kids and then almost everything, even if they did? Well, and I, it's interesting. It's funny you should mention billionaires in this respect. The way that I first understood the power of genomics was, and forgive me, forgive me this story, but, you know, I met this guy who I thought was a gym rat. Uh, you know, I play racquetball and it was this guy who big scruggly gray beard was always there. And I came to, I came to understand that this guy, Bert Vogelstein, uh, was at, is actually a researcher, John Hopkins, who led the team that figured out how mutations in proteins cause cancer back in the 1980s. And he's actually the world's most cited living scientist. <laughs> yeah, right? Kind of a big deal. And, and I was talking to Dr. Vogelstein, and what he told me, he said he had this thing called a billionaire's test, where if you give him and his team a blood sample and sequencing the genetic material within it, they could identify cancerous cells when people are substantially pre-symptomatic and don't feel even a little bit bad. And when obviously the cancers are much more treatable. When he told me this story, the cost of the test was $40,000. The year after that, it was $14,000. The year after that, it was a little more than $1,000. Now the same test, it's gone from being the billionaire's test, which you would get at the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins. And you, and you would only pay $40,000, you know, out of your pocket, even though you're feeling great, if you're really, really rich, to pretty soon, it's going to be a part of all of our annual checkups and just picked up by insurance. And so, you know, it, it's interesting to me to see how the costs of all of these things are going from the billionaires to the millionaires to hopefully soon to the masses. Do you think the costs will go down fast enough? If you look at technology, that's how it has always worked up to this point. The rich essentially subsidize the production to reach scale so that you have cheaper unit costs so that everyone can afford it. With with genetics, not so much with testing. Testing is one thing. And you can see even today, like the top 1% lives 10 years longer than the bottom 1% in the US. But in terms of legitimate genetic enhancements, it's going to be expensive initially. Oh, it is. Is, is this something where we could have a runaway type technology where those high costs lead to faster evolution in elites, probably politicians, because what better way to be bribed than to live longer? Is that something that are, you're worried about in terms of disproportionate access to exponential health tech? Yes. Uh, you know, look, I mean, the, the very simple fact of the matter is that the, the slope on the graph for elective enhancements uh, for a long period of time is going to be out of reach for most Americans. So what that means is a very practical matter is you could have a generation and a generation is a long time. You know, if you have 15 years of one class of people um, benefiting from genomics and the vast majority of others are not, there's already natural selection taking place in and among elites. Imagine if suddenly they are biologically advantaged, you know, to a degree that is almost unimaginable today. I mean, you could see us literally building a class of elites at the genetic level, the likes of which are almost unimaginable today. And, and you know, imagine the fallout from that. 
I think the the differentiator, the driving force will be one thing, and that is whether or not we're able to be as effective at delivering gene therapy to an individual who's alive versus in vitro or in vivo. Because if, if you do it essentially to the next generation, that means evolution takes at least one generation, which is still 10,000 times faster than it used to be, but it's a generation. But if you're able to do it on the person by person basis, that means that you can have multiple enhancements while you're alive. And then there's no, there's no lag. So yeah, that's right. I mean, and instead of a 10 year gap between, uh, between, you know, people in the top 1% and people at the 50th percentile, we could suddenly see that being a 20 year, 25 year gap in terms of life expectancy. So it's, it's, it's a little bit scary. What's interesting is attempts to regulate this in the I could imagine attempts to regulate this in the United States. But I don't think it would work if for no other reason than I would imagine that the Switzerland's and the Singapore's of the world, if something, if there's a failure to offer something in the United States, or if that offering is over overly regulated, then, you know, Switzerland or Singapore would love to be the home of people flying in first class or on their private jets to get their, to, to get their bodies hacked. So I do think that this is near inevitable. It's not near inevitable that it just happens in the United States. Oh, definitely. Because even if the countries around the world tried to make it illegal, where there's a will, there's a way. It doesn't matter if it's illegal. If your kid's going to die and you're incredibly wealthy, well, fuck the law. I'm going to do what I need to do. And I think anyone would say that regardless of who they are. No, that's right. I do think the one thing that's going to slow this down the most is the way that we bring therapies to market. You know, the old FDA model of we're going to spend a couple billion dollars to develop, a, you know, it takes a couple billion dollars in many years to bring a pill to market. The way that genetic therapies work, it doesn't work that way, you know, highly individualized. You know, the way to productize and commercialize in this world is very different than, you know, what the Marks and Pfizer's of the world have done for the past few decades. And I don't think that the U.S. government yet has figured out what its role as a regulator or enabler is in this world. Yeah, I was just talking to uh, Bertrand Mesco. He's a medical futurist. He's got a huge following. But he was talking about how DIYers are ahead of governments and corporations. If they, you've got diabetes and you need some type of solution, you can either kill yourself for the money or you can get a DIY kit and grow your own pancreas and it works and it costs almost nothing. It's really interesting how that, it would be interesting to see if genetics and health became almost an open source movement. That would be interesting. It's possible. It is possible. And, you know, again, going back to an earlier part of our conversation where we discussed whether we were going to have, you know, more or fewer forms of governance you know, where there is knowledge uh, and where there are incentives, it's it's not difficult to me to imagine that if, you know, the structures and strictures of national governments are not enabling people to live longer lives, that these open source transnational movements will will enable it. You know, if you're offering somebody a longer, a happier, a healthier life, nobody's going to sit around and, you know, wait for their country to catch up. And there are network effects and community effects uh, where information sharing, knowledge sharing and resource sharing, you know, can benefit not just yourself, but, you know, a broader community. I could see this as something of an open source movement. Do you think the religious and Christian background of the U.S. will hold them back versus other countries that are more willing to do tests? Oh, I think it already is. I mean, if you look at the decisions made during, you know, George W. Bush's administration on stem cell research, I mean, it's, it's precisely what we're talking about. So as I do think that there is a very regressive impulse in America uh, 
to, that, that holds science back, that holds exploration back. And which frankly, which is why a lot of the, the best lab work being done in the U.S. is often done pretty quietly and privately and outside of public view because you don't want it scrutinized by, you know, the Baptist down the street, you know, the Baptist preacher down the street who thinks that what you're doing is, is too godly and it's not meant to be done by man. I do think that there is something in our culture that does not lend itself to the most expeditionary work in science and medicine. Will that be the downfall of the U.S. as a superpower? I don't think so, just because despite that impulse, despite that, despite the, that aspect of our culture, it is actually not dominant among elites. And what do elites do? Elites fund the Johns Hopkinses and the Mass Generals. And, you know, so we've, we, we, have a, we have a culture that cuts against it in one respect. But on the, other, on the other hand, we have access to capital and we have immigration policies that have enabled the world's best researchers to come here and do their work. So things working across currents a little bit. Do you think that immigration policy will continue? It seems tenuous to say the least. Well, we're already, we've already taken steps backwards. You know, it is, you know, it's all too often the, the case now in the U.S. that, you know, people will come here, they'll get, you know, their master's at Stanford or, you know, their PhD from MIT or anywhere else. And then having gotten a world-class education, we make people go home. It's like literally the stupidest thing we could possibly do. And it happens with too great a frequency. You know, when I worked at the State Department, you know, we worked very, very hard with the White House to try to get Congress to pass immigration reform so that, you know, we would continue to be the destination for the world's greatest talent, as well, frankly, as people, the world's people who are most in need. And we've absolutely seen steps backwards uh, in the last couple of years. And, you know, ask any tech company CEO and, you know, they will tell you that, you know, the lack of access to talent is jamming them up. I think Canada is going to probably take the lead on this. They're so far ahead in the way they think about things. Obviously, there's other larger countries that do a good job. But at least if you think about North America, Canada does a great job with immigration, does a great job with education, does a great job with social support, does a great job with universal health care. And generally speaking, we, li- we lived there for six months. And it, the way I described it to people is like, Canada's like the US, but without a lot of the bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, if the weather were better, yeah, we would be, we would be there as well. Family, it, it, it would be it would be it would be a different story. And I'm that may sound glib. I actually mean it literally. You know, if you if if Toronto, you know, make Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, you know, six hundred miles to the south of where they are right now, and you've got a you've got a totally different story. Yeah, Toronto's like a little friendly New York City. So it's fascinating. So your background is innovation and technology. You wrote an awesome book. At least that's what I've heard. Industries of the future, and I'm curious to think or to see where you think we're headed in terms of technologies, industries, jobs, work, automation. Yeah, well, look, I mean, thanks for mentioning the book. You know, it's being published in, it's going to be up to 24 languages by the end of this year. I mean, look, the short version of it is I don't think the future is Star Trek. We aren't all going to live to be 150 years old, happy, healthy, wealthy, lacking for nothing. But it also isn't, it also isn't Mad Max. You know, look, the changes that are going to come are of net benefit to society, but the transition is tough for, you know, those segments of our society that, you know, are wearing red hats that say, make America great again. You know, they want to go back to the America of the 1950s, where dad got home from his union, from his union job at 515, dinner was on the table at six, mom didn't work, he was at the bowling league at 730. You know, look, that is that is an America of the past that doesn't want to embrace the America of tomorrow. 
So for all of the optimism I have about our living longer, happier, healthier, more productive lives with less bullshit, you know, a lot of what's being built right now is taking friction uh, out of our lives, taking meaningless time-wasting processes and turning them on to, and, and, and eliminating them with taps on our phone. There will be some and there will be a loud, potent segment of society that sort of takes us screaming into the future. I think it's a dangerous paradigm to think about the past or the future as better. So what you'll see is a lot of what people are doing these days online, technologically, isn't necessarily making them happier. We're more depressed than ever. That's thanks to Facebook and marketing for pharmaceuticals and poor nutrition and a bunch of other things. But you see people having less of a purpose. I like, I don't know if you've read, I think it's called Zen and the Art of motor Motorcycle Manufacturing or something. It's basically kind of if you think about the, the Japanese way of doing things, but doing it perfectly. How do we create that balance so that we don't create people that are plugged in and miserable and we don't create coal farmers that are killing over from lung cancer? Yeah, look, I think we have to self-regulate. I mean, I, I, it's interesting. My most successful friends in material terms, you know, my friends with hundreds of millions of dollars who made their hundreds of millions of dollars, oftentimes by getting people addicted to the piece of technology that they created, they are the strictest when it comes to their use and their children's use of technology. You know, you go to the $60,000 a year private schools in Silicon Valley, and there's a heck of a lot less technology than there is in many of the public schools. And so I do think that that it may sound ridiculous, but regulating your use of technology and more importantly, regulating your kids' use of technology is difficult but important. You know, my wife and I have three kids, 16, 13, and 11 years old. And the jihad that is waged at our house is between the parents and the kids on how much tech, on you know how much screen time they're going to have. But I do think it matters. You know whether our thirteen year old daughter is seeking happiness through affirm through the the form of likes on Instagram, or whether she's achieving happiness by being out in the world with her friends with her phones put away, is directly a byproduct of what you know the parents are going to insist on and and the the norms and habits that are established. So I think it's a a really important moment for parenting. Is it fair to say that the past was more dominated by intrinsic motivation and the future technology is more dominated by extrinsic? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I mean, look, when I was growing up in West Virginia and, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and run out my back door, which, you know, went right into the woods and I'd spend all day flame, playing with my friends and we did not emit or receive a single piece of data. You know, when we were out there, you know, we had zero digital footprint in the hills of West Virginia. Yeah, I, I think that these were, this was a life in a world where meaning was defined more from within and from a smaller community rather than, you know, the life that my kids are, are living right now. And again, I don't think that they should trade their lives for the life that I spent in the hills of West Virginia. But it's simply to say that, you know, what I want to do is, is maximize the positive and minimize the negative of their living in such a digital world. And that right there is both sides, both perspectives. That right there is what most people aren't able to have. And it's the reason we have these stupidly angry conversations where people hate each other afterwards. That's I got, right. I got a couple more questions for you just because you're a really interesting guy, Alec. What are you most worried about? Is there a technology that scares you more, more than most? Wow. That's a great question. Is there a technology that scares me the most? You know, the technology that scares me the most might actually be the weaponization of social media. 
you know, when I was at when I was working for President Obama, we saw technology used to, you know, remarkable political effect with the green movement in Tehran, with the, the revolutions in the Arab world and what have you. And since then, we've seen the weaponization of social media with things like Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Things aren't getting better or they aren't better yet. And so it's hard for me to think past this current challenge of how do we take Twitter and Facebook and, you know, their equivalents around the world and and to bend them back in the direction of being positive and productive and, and less, you know, really pointed, uh, really sharp political weapons. Just it's hard for me to get over that right now. There's a quote I really like, and I'm not sure who says it, but I've heard it from Dan Carlin. It's quantity has a quality all its own. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very applicable here. Something that is good in moderation with X number of people online and connected. As it becomes larger and larger, there's a reason why when we have riots, mob mentality has essentially no insight. It's stupider than every person there, and yet terrible things happen. It's the reason why ants can organize and create something in a swarm. Is that what we're seeing here? I think it is. I mean, if you look at if you look at the Trump movement, you know, I would I, I, I think there's an analogy there. I mean, we it is it there is nothing in history that reminds me so much of this Trump movement enabled by enabled substantially by social media as the rise of fascism and Nazism, you know, pre-World War II. You know, the way that social media can be used uh, to develop very powerful anti-Semitic racist or nationalist narratives and convince huge numbers of people of uh, of what's behind them. You know, it's it's uh, it's really powerful and distressing. If your kids came to you tomorrow and asked, Dad, what should I do? What should I study? What Or should I even study? What would you tell them, both for you and then if you were going to tell someone who wasn't quite in the same position as you? So I'm, I'm all about interdisciplinary learning. You know, it's, it's you know, I think that there, there, you need to understand things that are technical. I think that computer code is the alphabet that much of the future is going to be written in. But I think that, you know, if you don't want to just be a working class, middle class coder, then your technical skills are combined with aptitudes that we associate with in the humanities, whether that's communications abilities, emotional intelligence, and understanding of behavioral psychology. So this is a non-theoretical for me. You know, my kids are in school right now. And, you know, for my 16-year-old and 13-year-old, these are questions that we discuss. And, you know, for us, for me and my wife, it's really about the mashups. You know, my son is a really smart kid. He's got his mom's brains and he's taking AP physics and he's taking AP calculus and all this stuff. But, you know, we make sure he's also taking art history and he's also studying Chinese. And I think that that kind of balance is really important in in our kids' educations. Studying Chinese, it's so valuable. And that's such a DC thing to do. (laughs) I got got two last questions for you. And that's today, what's the thing that's coming up either, it can be recently passed or coming up in the future soon. What are you most excited about? What gets you wired? What am I most excited about? Um, you know, I what one I'll give one concrete example. I'm excited about the application of data analytics to real world problems. So, you know, we you know, I've been paying attention lately to, you know, the effect of the wildfires in California. And there's a terrific company that I'm involved with called One Concern. And the products that they are developing to help doing um, to help mitigate risk and to help understand uh, 
you know, what can be done to contain wildfires, minimize the effects of earthquakes and things like this. It's it's data analytics applied to real world problems. So that gets me very excited. Data and information is power. It's it's crazy where we're headed with that. I thought this was the last question, but there's one I forgot to ask. All right. Were you with Hillary there that night? With the night she lost? Yeah. No, I was not. You know, and I'm I'm certainly glad that I wasn't. You know, that 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 election felt cursed. From the beginning, it really did. It had there was sort of bad mojo. You know, I was not as involved in her campaign as I was in Obama's first presidential campaign, and it strikes me I was involved in day one from Obama's campaign that it had sort of a magical feel. And you know, we all worked our guts out. We loved it. We felt like we were going to win. And from the very beginning of Hillary's campaign, it felt like a death march. You know, we were supposed to win. It was negative. It was angry. It was. It, it, it just. It, it. There was bad mojo, and it just contrasted very, very starkly with my with my one other experience in presidential campaign, which was Obama's first one. It felt like gravity. You could see it coming. Oh, and you know, and there were times like the the you know the the grab them by the pussy tapes. You know, I was just kind of like, all right, well, it's October. He's now said something so totally disqualifying. It's unimaginable. It's literally unimaginable that he could win. And yet it's still like it was joyless. And it and she did and the campaign still did manage to lose. It was unfreaking believable. And that contrasted with the Obama campaign, where I thought the hurdles were much, 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 much higher. And we just sort of leapt over them. It's reality TV, baby. That's one thing. That's one thing actually I noticed with the Democrats is they kind of, they don't ever play offense and talk about what they're doing. It's always attacking, which isn't necessarily the best bet, but. You know, and I I think that whoever the Democrats nominate in 2020, the platform can't just be anti-Trump. You can't just say who and what you're against. There has to be an affirmative vision for what you want to do. Yes. The enemy of my enemy is not enough in this case. No, it's not. Last question for you, Alec. I know you're a busy guy. If you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, what would it be and why? So I would say it's to make mistakes of commission rather than omission. I mean, the one quote that is most inspirational to me was said over 100 years ago by Teddy Roosevelt. And he said, it's far better to dare mighty deeds, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they dwell in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And so for me, I'd rather, my advice to people is enjoy much and suffer much. You know, make, have big wins and big losses. Both, you know, that life is better than a life in the gray twilight where you know neither victory nor defeat. I like that quote and you sound a lot less pretentious than Teddy. Then again, (laughs) I guess he was in the position to be pretentious. Where's the best place for people to find you, Alec? Check out this book I've been hearing about. You've got like 300 reviews on Amazon. Well, I appreciate it. Look, alecross.com, A-L-E-C-R-O-S-S.com. If you guys have enjoyed this, check this out. Alex, uh, Alex's a pretty interesting guy. He can't tell you. He may actually be a spy. We can neither confirm nor deny the report, but we've heard some interesting stories. Thanks for coming on, Alec. Look, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Disruptors.fm. If you enjoyed this, share it with a friend. Help us reach more folks so that we can get more awesome guests like Alex. Cheers. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 